heads up, because you are in the Hoodwood. I'm the Black Bandit, KJ Green, welcoming you to another edition of What's in the Hoodwood. Coming up this week, New York baseball. Have they fallen the bleep off or what? Can USA basketball live up to the lofty expectations ahead of the world game? Could the White Sox be on the move? Shohei Shutdown. Could this cause the Japanese star hundreds of millions of dollars in the aging market? We'll have a debate. The greatest point guard, Magic or Curry? The numbers will surprise you. We'll have a Hollywood High Five, Fat Dap, Head Slap, Baby of Cake. It's all coming at you. Find your crash helmet, both your seatbelt. It's Sports in Hollywood coming at you. Let's go! Says it's just too doggone hot outside. I can't even lie. I'm your man KJ Green. Welcome you back to another edition of the Hoodwood. Wherever you're listening, whether it be podcast, wherever around the world, greetings. Watch on YouTube. You get to see my ugly bug along with some graphics. And I'll tell you how you can contact Hoodwood coming up at the end of the show. Whether it be email, uh, via tribal, via YouTube, like and smash the subscribe buttons. I got a variety of ways of getting a hold of me, so use them. It's what they're there for. Let's lead off with baseball, and I'm a kid of the 70s. I was born in 72. Don't even mention how old I am. I grew up watching Reggie Jackson, the Bronx Bombers, make mincemeat of baseball in the late 70s when I was in my formative years. I'm a little too... I was a little too young to remember the Big Red Machine in its heyday and glory. So my first favorite team was actually the New York Yankees. I was a big Reggie Jackson fan. Now the Yankees did fall off in the 80s with the tumultuous uh, ownership of George Steinbrenner. And he would have a bevy of players for free agency in and out. But they never could find the combination to put it all together to win another World Series. After making the World Series in 1981, they didn't make the World Series again for 15 years. Heck, they didn't make the playoffs for 14 years. Then, under the stewardship of Joe Torre, the glory days of the Yankees of the late 90s and early 2000s, under the captaincy of Derek Jeter, the Yankees were, once again, one of the most formidable clubs in Major League Baseball. They had a unprecedented run of good fortune in the free agent era when you usually didn't have teams that would win back-to-back titles. They won titles in 96, 98, 99, 2000, you know, just, just missing in 2001 after stirring seven-game loss to the Diamondbacks. But the Yankees were always in contention. It's hard to believe that the Yankees have been 14 years without being on top of the baseball world. But 
they have been, as I've said, a formidable foe. They have been regular contention dominating the AL East, winning close to or around 100 games each of the last three full seasons. This year, uh, the Yankees ain't any good. I mean, and I like Aaron Boone. I think he's a good manager. Somebody, it's rare when you see players make that good trend. I mean, good players making a transition to a manager. But the Yankees always seem to get those former players that turn into really good managers. But the Yankees this year, whether it's been injuries, whether it's been pitching, whether it's been just a lack of cohesiveness, I don't know. The Yankees just shook off a seven-game losing streak. When do you ever remember the Yankees losing seven games in a row? When do you remember the Yankees being in last place? You don't. It's just that simple. The Yankees are not a team that is ever that bad. And, I mean, they're not like Royals or A's bad. No, nobody's going to be that bad, but... They are in last place. And they and the, the media has constantly said, well, the Yankees, they still got to make a move and they can push back into the wild card. The wild card space, spaces, I should say, are getting more and more remote by the day. And while I still think Aaron Boone is a capable manager, he might lose his job. Even after winning 99 games last year, even after winning 103 games, in 21, Aaron Boone could be out of a job, and we're and we haven't even started <laughs> to talk about the mess that's across town in Queens. Your mess, I, I'm sorry, Mets, who have been a hot mess from the word go. I mean, when Edwin Diaz got hurt in the World Baseball Classic. That was a ominous sign of things to come. Justin Verlander, supposed to be the ace of the staff, doesn't start the season. Max Scherzer was ineffective. Carlos Carrasco, Jose Quintana, both missing time. The, the team itself, Sterling Mar Marte was not ready to play. The, the bullpen was supposed to be the linchpin. was just a mess. I mean, it was supposed to be anchored by Diaz. Diaz being hurt. And it's just the Mets were just never really in it. The Braves bullied them, pushed them around. The Marlins zoomed past them. The Phillies thought they were a joke. And as of Thursday the 24th, the Mets are 10 games below 500, light years out of first place, and the, the Mets had a fire sale. This being a team uh, that Steve Cohen spent literally hundreds of millions of dollars in salary, was not shy about throwing around the money, and other teams were, you know, basically poo-pooing it and clucking their tongues of how the Mets were being irresponsible. They were going to buy a pennant. The Mets won 100 games last year. You know, many people thought they were a dark horse to maybe make the World Series, even though they, they had an abject failure in the wild card round last year. 
And I still maintain that Buck Showalter remains the most overrated manager in Major League Baseball. He has consistently failed to take his team to the next level. This team with oodles of talent. But they had to rip the team apart in a fire sale. Both Verlander and Scherzer both gone to the respective Texas clubs in Houston and Texas. And the Mets, for their part, have not looked the part of a contender by any stretch of the imagination. You combine this with what's going on in the Bronx, the Yankees, well unused to being this far out of them. They're 18 games out of first place. They're five games out of into last. So the abject failures, and people say, have the New York teams fallen the F off or what? <sighs> they have fallen off. And, it, and help isn't coming soon. These teams may have to get used to being also rans for the near future. Let's focus on another very disappointing team on the other side of not uptown in New York, but on the other coast in LA. The Los Angeles Angels got some of the most devastating news on their superstar Shohei Otani, who, after pitching about an inning, a little over an inning with their Angels against the Reds earlier this week, left the game. And it was found that he had a UCL, UCL tear, ligament tear, in his elbow. Now, for a pitcher, that is pretty much shutdown news. That most often than not, Tommy John's surgery and better than a year out of the game is the um, required time to be... You know, to require recovery time. Well, with Otani being uh, a two-way player, and you can still swing a bat with a torn UCL, UCL, he will more than likely be able to DH. But his pitching career may be in serious jeopardy. Keep in mind that Otani already has had Tommy John surgery. He had it in 2019 and did not pitch at all in 2020. Otani is one of the more electrifying players in the game in the fact that he is not only a solid pitcher, but a devastating hitter. And many people think, myself included, that he is the front-running choice for most valuable player, even though he's playing on an also-ran Angels team. But there's a bigger picture there than what meets the eye. Otani's in his free agency season. The Angels gamble big. Artie Moreno taking Otani off of the off of the uh, the block at the trading deadline at the end of July, deciding no, we're gonna go all in and try to convince Otani that Anaheim was the place for him to continue, if not finish his career. Now, with Otani hurt, many teams may not be willing to pony up the big money that Otani was expected to get. Many people 
this scribe included, thought that Otani would be worth in the upwards of a half a billion dollars on the free agency market. And that there were big name clubs that were willing to throw that kind of quan at Otani. And he would rightfully deserve it. A two-way player, not only somebody that's good with the stick, but also can, can come on the mound and throw devastating fastballs, curves, change-ups on a regular basis. You're getting two players for the price of one, even though that price would be steep. Now there may be teams that might not be so sure. There may be teams that are leery. Teams that are like, ah, he's a little injury prone. He may not be the type of pitcher that we may want to spend that kind of quan on. Though his hitting is still on point. His 45 home runs lead the major leagues. But again, he, the, he decided he was going to gamble and say, you know what? I'm going to be pretty valuable on the open market. The Angels, hoping to convince Otani to stay in the only place that he's played his Major League Baseball at, hope to convince to get him for a hometown discount. The question now is, how long will Otani be able to not be able to pitch? And then, what team would be willing to take a chance on him, knowing they may never get him as a pitcher and damage goods as a hitter? And would they be willing to pay top dollar for that? Again, think, Otani may very well be able to command anywhere from $300 to $500 million in salary for an 8 to 10 year contract. Otani's 29. Many people think he may be at the top of his career, at the height of his powers and the height of his earning powers. Will he be able to command top dollar for his services? Inquiring minds won't know. Let's take a first time out. Come back and look at the greatest point guard debate. A Hoodwood investigation. Who is a better point guard? Magic Johnson or Steph Curry? There's another one that inquiring minds want to know. Sports on Hoodwood returns these messages. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at gottagetmarriednow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at gottagetmarriednow.com. <coughs> You are tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for opinion, analysis, and insight on the world of sports. Here now is the man banned from sports trivia contests in 38 states and four Canadian provinces, and not to mention Guam. Your host, KJ Green. Okay, let's talk hoops. Now, I will get into the Magic versus Curry 
point guard debate here shortly. But first, let's look at the FIBA World Cup. Yes, it's about that time for the FIBA World Cup where the best teams, the national teams, are facing off in the Philippines. Now, the top seven teams will qualify for the Olympics. Now, you say, well, why is it eight? Because France is the host comp country next year in Paris automatically gets, gets a berth in the tournament, in the Olympic tournament. Now, the U.S. finished disappointing seventh in the FIBA World Cup in 2019, Spain taking the title in a thrilling final. But many people think that this team, led by Anthony Edwards of the Minnesota Timberwolves, could be make, a, make their mark back near the top of the FIBA World Cup. There's a lot of expectations, but in the 32-team field, there is a lot of good teams that could make a run deep into the tournament. Is there a group of death? I, I really can't say, you know, looking over the the names, the, the teams they're in, how they're grouped. Uh, the U.S. are in the uh, Group C with Greece, New Zealand, and Jordan. But it's there isn't a real oh my goodness this is you know gonna be a, a deadly group uh, Spain Brazil Iran and the Ivory Coast in one uh, Serbia Puerto Rico China and South Sudan South Sudan I'm thinking but <laughs> they're in one group that's an interesting uh, Carl Anthony Towns playing for the Dominican Republic team in a group with Italy. Uh, Philippines and Angola in Group A. Uh, the tournament starts uh, from has started on the 25th and will run through September 10th. Now, a lot of the big names for U.S. are sitting out this tournament with the FIBA World Cup and the Olympics in back-to-back -back years. A lot of the NBA stars are loath to play in the FIBA World Cup, turn right around playing a full NBA season. Then with the Olympics in Paris in the summer of 24 and trying to play FIBA World Cup a full season and then the Olympic Games, which is like I said, I believe, I believe it's in the summer. Uh, uh, to play that all at once would be too much for some players to play. I mean, they'd be playing somewhere in the upwards of you know 120 games. And if they are playing deep into the NBA playoffs, it's going to make for a little bit more of a workload than they really want. So, a lot of the players, a lot of the top-name NBA players are sitting out the FIBA World Cup. That's where you're seeing players like uh, Anthony Edwards, uh, Shai Gillis Alexander, Alexander, really having a chance to step up and shine in the stead of a lot of the big-name stars playing in the uh, playing in the FIBA World Cup. Now, a lot of these big-name stars will play in the Olympics, you can almost bank on that, but a lot of them are sitting this one out. Does the expectations for USA basketball look, prove to be too high? I think that the U.S. could, if not outright win the tournament, finish in top four. I could see a USA versus Canada final. That would make North America very happy. Make the rest of the world a little bit annoyed, but still... I still think the U.S. has a better than a puncher's chance to make the final and possibly win the tournament. What do you think?
I had said that watching baseball that the New York Yankees were my first favorite team. Now, when it came to basketball, of course, the Lakers were my uh, first favorite team because I absolutely adored Magic Johnson, the ebullient, smiling, um, quick dish artist of the Showtime Lakers. I'm also watching uh, that Winning Time uh, docudrama, I guess, that's been on HBO Max. It's really good. I, th I didn't think John uh, O'Reilly was going to make the uh, portrayal of Jerry Buss as dynamic as he did. And he made it a very fascinating character. If you do have HBO Max, I suggest you take a look. That being said, there has been a growing debate on who the best point guard of all time is. Now, I'm old enough to have seen Magic play in his prime. I saw him play most of his most of his 12-year career and stood like a lot of people in shock when he announced his retirement from the game after he um, acquired HIV. That was 32 years ago. Steph Curry was barely a toddler when Magic Johnson made his announcement. His father, Del Curry, was a good player for the Cleveland Cavaliers in the Char then the uh, the first edition of the Charlotte Hornets in the mid in the early to mid nineties. Curry has put up dynamic numbers from the word go from being drafted out of Davidson in 2009. He has also played, he has played 14 years. The comparisons between the two, many people arguing who would have been the, who is the best point guard of all time or who is better between uh, Johnson and Curry. Take a look at the stats here. Uh, the, the numbers bear out what with surprisingly even numbers, the only thing that Cur that uh, Johnson has I would say over Curry was Curry was more most valuable players, uh, but Curry did something Magic wasn't able to do, win unanimous most valuable player, something that never has only been his only the only one that has been able to do that. Comes points, assists, assists. Magic has almost two to one over Curry and the numbers and many people see the crazy numbers that Steph Curry has been able to put up scoring wise and Magic Johnson was never really that much of a score I mean he barely cracked 17,000 points way 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 down on the scoring list whereas Steph Curry is well over 21,000 uh, uh, but assists, as like I said before, uh, Magic is almost 2-1. Rebounds, of course, Magic Johnson being 6-9, Curry barely being over a 6-1, 6-2. Three-pointers, of course, Curry has 10 times more three-pointers, but you think of the way the game was back then. You didn't see a lot of three-pointers. I mean, Larry Bird was known as a three-point specialist, but... He didn't hit that many three-pointers, to be perfectly honest, even though he won a three-point shootout more than a few times. When it comes to triple-doubles, of course, nobody's going to pass Magic Johnson. He has 112 to have, but he has 138. Steph Curry has 10. 
But, but the numbers, the comparisons, the styles of play, Curry can kill you from past the logo at half court. He has range 40 feet in. Magic Johnson, again, never was known as a primary scorer until late in the Showtime era when Pat Riley asked him to do more with the ball, to score the ball more often. Then his scoring totals went up. But in the early in incarnation of the Lakers, the early 80s with uh, Jack Kenny, Paul Westhead, and the early versions of Pat Riley, Magic Johnson was a distributor, a facilitator. He ran the offense. There were other scoring options beside him, namely Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, James Worthy, Byron Scott. Johnson was never a primary scorer. He wasn't a secondary scorer. He may have been a tertiary scorer at best. Only in later in his career, in the second and third, uh, say, say the third uh, matchup with the Celtics, Magic became more of a, a, a scorer. He still ran the offense, but he had the opportunities more to score. Curry, on the other hand, has always been known as a long-range bomber. Somebody who can get free, create his own shot, and bomb you from long range. Slight of figure, slight of build. He's never been somebody that's going to be a bruiser and banger underneath. Unlike Johnson, who was at his playing weight, 6'9", and about 225. He's kind of lithe, but he still was big enough to be able to play underneath on the boards when need be. Curry, on the other hand has always been, like I said, slight of frame and somebody who was more content to hang around the three-point line, bomb his way from, from outside. With fellow splash brother Clay Thompson, they have created the type of offense that is high speed, high oriented, and can put up the number of points that the Showtime Lakers, who was considered a running gun team, are now looking like they're running, running with lead in their pants in comparison. The debate rages on who's the best point guard of all time, Magic or Curry? What do you think? I'm actor Rajim A. Gross. Some of the Studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer-generated characters, not only in the movie that we might be filming in, but in all future films as well. That's not fair. And I thank the SAG board members that are fighting for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say standing in complete solidarity with everyone. Thank you.
You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, AJ Green. This really makes no sense to me. I have, I'm a diehard Twins fan, so I have absolutely no love for the Chicago White Sox. That being said, the talk I'm hearing, and there's been some serious talk about the White Sox pulling up stakes and moving out of Chicago. Now, like a lot of teams, <clears throat> excuse me, there's been some leverage or, let's say, questions about stadiums. Uh, the White Sox playing guaranteed rate field, where they were the dumbest names for a park, are uh, New Comiskey since 1991. This stadium was the last of the cookie cutters, the round bowl shaped field, even though it's baseball only, as Comiskey's always been. Let's just say Comiskey's always been because the Chicago Cardinals played there at one time, but that's neither here nor there. Comiskey, new Comiskey, now guaranteed great field, has been the home for the Chicago White Sox since 1991. Now, after that stadium was built, the newer, um, I would say, retro ballpark started coming online. Um, Camden Yards, Ballpark Arlington, um, names are escaping me off the top of my head but a lot of the retro ballparks started coming online and a lot of the fields that were designed as multi-purposes were falling out of favor the round cookie cutter type stadiums were no longer seen as the type of fields that were desirable in major league baseball the Chicago White Sox haven't had another tenant in their building. They've been always baseball only. But it doesn't have the amenities that most baseball owners want to see. Luxury boxes, um, types of suites that you can get corporate entities in. The types of things that other stadiums that have been built in the 30 plus years since the White Sox built their newest playpen have come online. Now, White Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf, who has owned the team since 1981, is putting out feelers. Rumors have been abounding that the White Sox could leave Guaranteed Rate Field on the south side of Chicago and go where? Some people say Arlington Park. Arlington Park being where the Bears may very well end up themselves if they move out of the Lakefront Soldier Field. Could the White Sox be a co-tenant? Possibly in a multi-purpose field? There's a lot of questions that are bound there. But some stronger drum beats have come out that the White Sox could move out of Chicago altogether, out of Illinois altogether, and end up somewhere like Nashville or Portland. The rumors are really strong for Nashville. Now Nashville is a beautiful city, big cosmopolitan, but they are they only have two professional teams, the Predators in hockey and the Titans in football. 
a Major League Baseball team could really boost their status as a team, as a city on the come up. Now, Nashville has had a, a variety of minor league teams, mostly a AAA variety, and have shown that they can support those type of teams. The problem is moving the White Sox, a team that has been in Chicago for a century and a quarter, could really upset the balance in Major League Baseball. Now, the A's moving to Vegas, that's a shit show in itself, and we won't rehash that. But Major League Baseball's got a problem of teams now all of a sudden looking, casting their eyes here and there, and talking about moving. Now, Major League Baseball team has not moved since the Expos pulled up stakes out of Montreal and moved to Washington some 18 years ago. But the Major League Baseball knew that team was a pig in a poke. They weren't making any money. The Canadian dollar at the time was very weak against the American dollar, and the Expos were traditionally a tough draw. But if you're taking a team out of the third largest metropolitan area, Yes, they still have the Cubs, but if you've ever been in Chicago, you know that Cub fans are Cub fans, White Sox fans are White Sox fans, and near should the twain, twain ever meet. When they started playing interleague games some 20 years ago, those were hot tickets. The, the Crosstown series between the Cubs and the White Sox were must-see games. These two teams did not like one another, and they still don't like one another. Their fans don't like one another. You're not going to see Sox fans in Wrigley Field. You sure shooting ain't going to see uh, Cub fans down on the south side. It's just not going to work. And if you take a team like the White Sox out of Chicago, if they move to Arlington, meh, it, it, it is what it is. But if you take the White Sox out of Chicago, that's going to irreparably damage the game. And that's going to cause an identity crisis for a lot of fans, especially on the South Side. It's a real quandary in itself. Take a time out, come back with the Hoodwood High Five. Fact that, head slap, and the final word from the wood. Sports from the Hoodwood heads down the home stretch after this.
for most location for no-nonsense commentary, insight, and opinions on the world of sports. Here now live in living color, black by popular demand, your host, KJ Green. Rhyming third and headed from home here in the Hoodwood, we'll finish up strong with the Hoodwood High Five, Fat Dab Head Slap, and the final word from the wood. Hoodwood High Five, last t- last shot for the quick takes. Next week will be the inaugural Hoodwood High Five, College Hot Five, who I think the best five college teams are in the country. So, let's do these quick takes. Our first quick take is a bit of a sad, uh, sad start to the uh, quick takes. Olga Carmona, who scored the game-winning goal in the Women's World Cup against England, found some tragic news at the end of the match, after the match and the celebration, to find out her father had passed away before the match. Carmona was not told about this before the game and was uh, able to play with a clear head. Carmona did find out her father passed and dedicated the win and the goal to her father. Our condolences from the Hoodwood to Olga Carmona, a great player with a sad story and a loss. Our second point in the Hoodwood Hot Five is the finals of the ATP Cincinnati, played Mason, Ohio, between Novak Djokovic and Carlos Alcaraz. Now, you will remember these two went head up in the finale in Wimbledon just last month. Djokovic got a bit of a measure of revenge by outlasting Alcaraz in a five-set finale. A thrilling one played in 95-degree heat in Cincinnati. It's been hot in this area. And, but these two players kept their cool and battled through a five-set finale. Novak Djokovic, tuning up for the U.S. Open, um, get the feeling that him and Carlos Alcaraz are going to be seeing a lot of one another here in the next couple of years. Is And we're now we'll move on to our third point in the Hoodwood Hot Five, and I'm asking a simple question. Is Wanda Franco done in Major League Baseball? He has more or less committed career suicide with his dalliances with an underage girl. Now, Juan Franco is 22 years old. If the female had been 17, I might be able to look look the other way. But a grown man shouldn't be messing with a teenager one way or the other. But this child was 14. And I say child. Had this been, say, my daughter, my Princess Jazzy's 15. If I'd have found out that a 22-year-old was messing with my daughter, <laughs> I'd be using his head for batting practice. I got a metal bat right upside the, the, the uh, Hoodwood office, and I ain't afraid to use it. Wanda Franco should have known better. And he is basically torpedoing his career. Because he's going to be nuclear. Ain't no team going to want somebody who's, you know, uh, in business with a teenager, a child, accused of all sorts of things. Now, if this was a, it was a consensual relationship, but Franco should have known better. He's putting millions of dollars on the line for this. Now, he's under administrative leave. And that was imposed by Major League Baseball after the uh, Tampa Bay Rays suspended him. But Wander Franco might be warning himself, 
right on out of Major League Baseball and with good cause. Our fourth topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five is asking a question of the NFL. Baker Mayfield in Tampa Bay. Is this his last best chance to be a full-time starter? Now, the former top pick of the Cleveland Browns and Heisman Trophy winner has bounced from team to team to team to team. From Cleveland to Carolina to Los Angeles, now back to Tampa Bay. The shelf life of quarterbacks, especially starting quarterbacks, is uneven at best. Heisman Trophy winners have a lot more scrutiny. Baker Mayfield was seen as a savior in Cleveland, but played his way out of Northeast Ohio before landing in Carolina. He looked like he was going to bounce back. Didn't do that much. He had a nice stretch in L.A., about five or six games filling in for Matthew Stafford for a wo woefully sad Rams team. Now he lands in Tampa Bay, post-Tom Brady. Expectations could be a little bit, could be tempered a little bit. The Buccaneer fans have gotten spoiled by being a constant playoff contender. That's not going to happen this year. Not under Baker Mayfield. Now, if he is able to rescue his career, he might be able to stabilize himself. Put down roots in Tampa Bay. But this might be his last chance. Because quarterbacks have, have like I said, a short shelf life. And if you're starting to see yourself as a journeyman, you can get that cap, that clipboard, stand on the sidelines like a good scrubini. Baker Mayfield will be just another Heisman Trophy quarterback that has done little in the NFL. Our final topic stays in football. Will the Joe Mixon situation be another distraction for the Cincinnati Bengals? Now, Joe Mixon was cleared of uh, assault charges late last week. And he does, but he still faces other lawsuits stemming with altercations with neighbors. Joe Mixon may be the linchpin for the Bengals' offense. With Joe Burrow coming back slow from a calf injury, the Bengals may need a strong Joe Mixon to steady their offensive attack as Joe Burrow is brought back slowly. If Mixon is a distraction in the locker room, outside the locker room, the Bengals can ill afford to get away with another 0-2 start. They got lucky last year. Remember, they started 0-2, losing to Pittsburgh and Dallas, before winning 12 of their final uh, 14 games, postponement, uh, cancellation against Buffalo notwithstanding. But they won 12 of their final 14 full-play games and won two playoff games. A steady offense is needed. And the Bengals are not going to be able to get away with an 0-2 start. Not with Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and a rising Cleveland in their division. An 0-2 start could be damaging this time around. They're not going to be able to get away that lucky. Joe Mixon better have his mind right. Or the Bengals could be in serious trouble before the end of September. That's my hot five. What's yours? Hat, fat dap and head slap is one of each but I'm doing two of them in a specific order and you'll understand why when you see what the uh, the cases are 
First of all, our first fat dap of the week goes to Angel Reese of Louisiana State, who is using part of her $1.7 million in NIL deals to give back to her high school alma mater, donating $12,000 a year in tuition. Now, the fund she is donating to is the same fund that helped her pay tuition at her when she was in, in this high school um, uh, about three or four years ago. Fat dap to Angel Reese for not forgetting where she came from and giving back. Now, first head slap of the week goes to the Chicago White Sox. Not because they're talking about moving, but they let Luis Castillo throw the same pitch over and over and over and over again. He threw the same fastball 47 times in a row. Didn't throw a curve, didn't throw a slider. He kept pumping fastball after fastball after fastball and the White Sox could do nothing with it. While the Mariners pummeled the White Sox 14-2 on Tuesday night, Castillo threw 95 pitches in seven innings. The last 47 of them, fastballs. And how many hits did the White Sox get off of it? Those last 47? One. <laughs> Head slap to the White Sox, who've made a really pitiful season and a pitiful effort seem that much more crystallized. Now, our first, or sorry, should I ask that? Try it again. Our second head slap of the week goes to Luis Rubiales, who is the head of the Spanish Soccer Federation. Rubiales decided he wanted to give a kiss on the lips to Jennifer Hermoso during the uh, trophy presentation of the Women's World Cup last weekend. He kissed her on the lips and it wasn't a consensual thing. I could see a kiss on the cheek. You know the, how the Europeans do the kiss on the cheek, kiss on the cheek. That's one thing. But he kissed her like he was trying to get some. It's disgusting. And there have been calls for Rubiales to step down as a Spanish Federation president. He decided, he says, I'm not going to step down. And has insisted that what he did was not wrong. Never mind some of the very lewd things that Rubiales has already done. Grabbing his crotch by, in, in full, full view of the Spanish queen and princess. It's disgusting. And Rubiales is thinking, well, I did nothing wrong. No, you're a chauvinistic pig. If that had been my daughter, that would have been another one where... Gave me a baseball bat because I'm about to go up somebody's, upside somebody's head. Head slap to Luis Rubiales. Man, just step down. Do everybody a favor. On that same token, I'm giving a fat dap. Fat dap? Because I already gave one. I'm giving another one. It's my show. I'm giving a fat dap to the male Spanish Federation national players who have said they will not get back onto the pitch until Rubiales steps down in solidarity and support of the women's team who has also said that they will not play as long as Rubiales continues to be the Spanish Federation president. And they are in the right. They should protest. They should say, we're not playing. What Rubiales did was wrong. And he should be held 
fully accountable for this. Fat dap to the male Spanish Federation players who stand in solidarity with their comrades, the women Spanish Federation players. Rubiales, you need to go, cuz. Now, without further ado, let's go to the final word from. In 2005, college football witnessed one of the most breathtaking single seasons in its history. Reggie Bush, a gifted running back for the defending national champions at Southern Cal, looked to make his lasting impact and mark for the Trojans. He did so in a most thrilling manner, and with his electrifying runs not seen in USC colors since the Halicon days of O.J. Simpson. The lifebacks sought to etch his name with Simpson, Mike Garrett, Charles White, and Marcus Allen as runners from USC that would win the Heisman. USC's two previous Heisman winners were actually quarterbacks in Carson Palmer and Matt Leinart, Bush's teammate, who had recently won the coveted trophy with, in the past couple of years. Bush sought to be among those hallowed names and did so with an efficiency that bordered on frightening. One breathtaking run after another, Bush burrowed himself in the collective consciousness of Heisman voters and ingratiated himself on the front minds of fans. Now, I definitely was a fan. His moves bordered on the PlayStation video game type, though many called the Bush push in the thrilling duel against Notre Dame a tad suspect. The Trojans were the nation's top team. And in a city bereft of pro teams, remember this, the Raiders had already left for Oakland and the Chargers and Rams were still a dozen years away from moving back to L.A. from San Diego and St. Louis, respectively. They were the football team in the City of Angels. And Angelinos embraced this team as big time with sellouts at LA, ancient L.A. Coliseum being a frequent thing, and big-name celebrities on the Trojan sidelines, a regular occurrence. Bush finished the 2005 season with 1,740 rushing yards, 16 touchdowns, and garnered 784 first-place votes and won the Heisman in a runaway over Vince Young from Texas and teammate Matt Leinart, who won the trophy a year before. Though Bush and USC lost the national game in a memorable shootout with Young and the Longhorns, he decided to forego his senior season and declare for the NFL draft. He was the number two pick in the 2006 NFL Draft and played a solid, if unremarkable, 11-year career with the Saints, Dolphins, Lions, Niners, and Bills, and snacking a chip with the Saints in 2009. Now, in 2006, rumors began to surface that Bush's family had received gifts in violation of NCAA rules and was sued by sports agent Lloyd Lake in 2007 to recoup over $290,000 in cash and gifts. In 2010, the NCAA cited USC for major sanctions and put the Trojans on four years probation and forced them to vacate two wins in 2004 and all of the 2005 wins and had to disassociate themselves with Bush for 10 years. USC returned its replica of Bush's 2005 Heisman and Bush returned his actual trophy back to the Heisman Trust in 2012. USC ended its association with Bush in 2020 and will be retiring his number five jersey later this season. Ironically, Bush will also be inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame later this season. Pretty interesting for a player who uh, barely has an existence in the annals of USC and the NCAA. Remember, all those records were vacated. 
Now the NCAA players are allowed to make money in their own on their own name, image, and likeness. Bush has heavily campaigned to be reinstated as the 2005 Heisman Trophy winner and get his trophy back. But as of this taping, has heard nothing back from the NCAA. Now, is this the right move by Bush? It's easy to say, well, kids are getting NIL deals now. Why can't we? But can't Bush be grandfather into this? As much as I am a fan of Bush, one would think that taking away the punishment is the wrong move. If you let Bush off the hook, should you let others that were punished for improper benefits over the years be forgiven? When you forgive one, everyone will come a-calling at the NCAA's door to be forgiven. Now, there are instances where outright cheating, players being paid to come to certain schools, are on the books and should be noted. One of my favorite sports docs is on the trials and tribulations of the SMU football team, ESPN documentary called Pony Excess. The only school that has received, football school that has received the death penalty, they didn't receive it for just one act. They broke the rules and got caught, were put on probation, broke the rules on probation, paid players, tried to cover it up, and lied about the whole thing and got caught. They were guilty of sin and were asking to get the hammer brought down on them. And Bush, as an individual, and while rules say that an ineligible player that plays make the team forfeit wins, I've always thought that would be a stupid rule. I remember my high school self-reported that they had an ineligible player, a marginal one, but one that had played in all their games. They were forced to vacate all of their wins, but the last one that their player did not play in, and went from 19-1 to 1-19. That was a harsh and stupid punishment. USC was forced to go on probation five years after Bush had played. And the kids that were on those teams were forced to bear the brunt of something that had happened when most of them were still in junior high school. There is a part of me that thinks Bush got a right and just punishment. But then I look at the NCAA. They are notorious for trying to get institutions that they think are outlaws. I look at the way they relentlessly hounded basketball coach Jerry Tarkanian from his days at Long Beach State to UNLV to his alma mater at Fresno State. The NCAA hated Tark, and oftentimes he did push the boundaries and push them hard, but the NCAA often had little to go on but rumors. They hated that Tark was winning with kids that weren't squeaky clean at a smaller school. The NCAA knew what was going on at UCLA, but since John Wooden was otherwise saintly, they looked the other way at the numerous violations, recruiting, benefits, and otherwise, not coming down in UCLA till five years after Wooden had retired. The NCAA has let some violators get away with slaps on the wrist while coming down hard on other schools, forcing disassociations and making schools rewrite their history to ignore chapters, players, and eras. I'm looking at you, Michigan. That said, Bush never received any money. His parents were leasing a house from a shady would-be sports agent who tried to lever that, leverage that into being able to represent Bush and reap some of the big money that he would be getting as a top draft pick. The NCAA then tried to leverage that to get at USC, a team that they thought was too glamorous, too fun, and against the norm. Now Bush may be tilting at windmills, trying to get his Heisman back, but the NCAA has enough skeletons in its collective closet that they have a very weak leg to stand on to deny him. To be honest, I think everyone should just walk away and leave it all alone. And that is the final word from the wood.
Now with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done. And I thank you so much again for your visit. Now, the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. You send me emails regarding show topics, both past and future, questions, comments on the show, and both praise and criticism. I welcome your correspondence, and I'll try to get back with you in a timely manner. Now, the show's website is sportsfromthehoodwood.com. It has a back catalog of the show dating back 11 years in both audio and video forms. So you can check that out if there are any shows that you may have missed. You can join the debate and conversation on the Sports from the Hoodwood page on Facebook. We also have a video podcast, simulcast, as well as other topics, funny stuff I find on the web, and plenty of great sports debate, and lots more. I respond often to member posts frequently and join the conversation. Now, the video version is on YouTube. Please hit that subscribe and smash that like button for more great content. The link to the podcast is also on the show's Twitter feed for the moment. We are moving from X over to Tribal. There will be more details on that in future shows. So if you do hit me up, and I will hit you back. You like and follow there as well. Now, the audio version is on Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iTunes from Apple, and a host of other fine podcast platforms and providers. If the Hoodwood is not on your favorite, ask for it. Drop me a line, and I will do what I can do to get it on your favorite podcast platform or provider. Special thanks, as always, to Ray Pictures for providing production assistance both the show's website and the show itself. And that's it from the Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Until next time, from the Hoodwood, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green, 30. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production.